You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. And welcome once again to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, weekly episode number 108. I'm your host, Rick Cole. Every week, right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years where we look at all the hockey news that was taking place at that time, written by some of the greatest sports writers ever. In this episode, we are in the week of November 15 to 21, 1971. Now, if you like what we do here each week on the Hockey Podcast Network and every day on our Twitter account, uh, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey50years and subscribe to this podcast. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's free podcast, but they also get a lot of special content that we develop several times a month where we're allowed to go a little more deeply into these subjects that we're making the hockey news in the those days recently we did an episode for the subscribers on the life and death of Stafford Smythe and we've got a big WHA WHA update coming this week Uh, it's just uh, some of the things we like to do a little more uh, deeply like we said get a little more detail than time doesn't permit us to do here and uh, we think it's a good value for the uh, podcast subscription that's patreon.com slash hockey 50 years so this week was a pretty interesting one 50 years ago. Several NHL teams decided that it was time to pull the trigger on a few trades to shake up the rosters. But uh, what I think was most surprising, at least to me in this week, was that the Boston Bruins were not one of the teams that were swapping players around. Well, I shouldn't say that. They did make a, a one deal, but the team that was really uh, active, most active this week were the New York Rangers, who are off to one of the best starts in their history, leading the Eastern Division. Uh, Emil Francis tried to get ahead of the market with a couple of big and pretty unexpected deals. And there was a lot of other stuff going on as well, so let's get to all the news right away. So Bobby Hull of the Chicago Blackhawks became a little over $300,000 richer this week and had very little to do with hockey and absolutely nothing to do with the World Hockey Association. In fact, it might have even been a little negative effect to the WHA. Bobby Hull sold off his Saskatchewan herd of about 420 Hereford cattle and he received about $306,000 for the sale. Now, the reason for the sale was given that the Golden Jet just had too many other commitments to actively look at his farm and sustain 
Saskatchewan. A lot of people thought that this rumored the Winnipeg Jets million dollar offer to Hull, uh, one of the things that would give them kind of a leg up on anybody else is that Winnipeg's right next door to Saskatchewan and Bobby would probably uh, take advantage of being in Winnipeg full time to spend more time at the farm there. But this plan seems to scuttle that idea. The Los Angeles Kings this week lost promising defenseman Paul Curtis for about two months with badly torn knee ligaments after he was hit by the Bruins' Derek Sanderson in an early week game way out west. Sanderson hit Curtis in direct retaliation for a body check he had delivered to the Bruins' uh, Ace Bailey, who is actually a lot tougher guy than Derek Sanderson and doesn't need anybody to fight his battles for him. Sanderson never hesitated after the hit. Knew, he knew he would be penalized and he skated directly to the penalty box. He didn't even wait for official Dave Newell to make the call. Of course, the Boston Globe hockey writer John Aaron says that this is a very good sign that the Bruins are starting to get together again. If... Uh, Injuring other teams' players for perceived transgressions is a good way to get together again. By the way, Bailey didn't even miss a shift as a result of the contact with Curtis. Now, Sanderson was talking to Aaron after the game, and here's what... Uh, uh, comments he made. Sanderson admitted that there was some motivation as a result of an immediately preceding incident. While Ace Bailey was attempting to remain on site at the blue line, he was brought down by Jean Bot then, and there was some concern the blonde winger might have sustained a groin pull. Didn't happen. It twisted a little, Bailey said after the game, but I was lucky. There was no real damage. Well, Sanderson, for his part, says, I thought Ace was hurt. That guy took a cheap shot. Maybe I was evening things up naturally I didn't want to hurt anybody or put a guy in the hospital but now there's a guy out two months because of Derek Sanderson there was another significant hockey injury this week actually there were a few this week but this one you you just can't make this stuff up folks and this is St. Louis Blues defenseman Noel Picard and I'll just read you the story as it appeared in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Blues defenseman Noel Picard suffered a compound fracture of his right ankle, foot, and heel as a result of a fall when horseback riding in Ironton, Missouri. He was in satisfactory condition after undergoing surgery at Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. Picard will likely miss the remainder of the season. He was injured when the horse he was riding reared, throwing Noel backwards to the ground. The horse then stepped on Picard's right foot. Picard's friends found him lying in the pasture and they brought him to the hospital. Another horse apparently caused, it spooked Picard's mount and caused it to rear. With Dr. Jerry Gilden and Dr. Jacob Probstein working together, the surgery on the ankle lasted about four hours from 8.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. An official statement from the Blues office said that the prognosis at this point was guarded. The length of time Picard will be out of action is impossible to tell right now. It's indefinite. You know uh, how players so often gain weight while they're off uh, convalescing from injuries 
and they're off skates for all this time. They can't, you know, with some injuries, you just can't work out to keep yourself in condition. Well, such is not the case for North Star center Dennis Hextall. He was acquired during the offseason from the Oakland Seals, California Seals, whatever you want to call them this week. Well, he had a uh, serious knee surgery six weeks ago of the time of this report. Hextall, during this time, hasn't put on weight around the middle. He hasn't gained weight, but rather he's lost. He went from his playing weight of 182 down to his svelte, 168. It looks like Hex may have to take some time to build up his strength and stamina when he's ready to return, which won't likely be until the new year. The North Stars received word this week that his rehab isn't going well, the knee is not responding, and it's going to take a little more time to Dennis to get back in game shape. This wasn't even trading deadline this week in the NHL, but it was seemed like it, at least at the beginning of the month on Monday. Uh, trades were really something special to me. If you follow me, you know that I'm really interested in, in trades. And it started way back. I think the first trade that really grabbed my attention, that got me uh, interested in trades, was when the Leafs managed to get Red Kelly from the Red Wings after he refused to go to the New York Rangers. I was only nine at the time, but, you know, it was something that was pretty, actually eight years old when I think about it, eight, nine, just in that time. And these really got me interested in uh, deals. So I'm going to talk to about the Rangers going kind of crazy, trade crazy this week. Gerald Escanazzi, the New York Times, reports the first deal. Uh, and here's what Gerald writes. When Jack Eagers returned from the hospital yesterday where his wife had just given birth to a baby girl, he learned he was no longer a New York Ranger. Eagers, a left wing with a devastating slap shot who had been groomed to be a future Ranger star, became part of a seven-man trade with the St. Louis Blues, a club in next to last place in the National Hockey League's Western Division. Eagers, two Ranger farmhands, and a player to be named later were exchanged for the Blues' top, top draft pick this past summer, Gene Carr, and two other forwards, youngish Jim Lorenz and not-so-young Wayne Connolly. Joining Eagers at St. Louis will be the penalty-minded defenseman Andre Moose DuPont, who couldn't make the big club out of training camp, and Mike Murphy, a high draft choice two years ago, who's been playing for Omaha in the Central League following a contract dispute with Coach Emil Francis during training camp. The addition of the three former Blues gives the Rangers 22 players, including the sideline Peter Stemkowski, uh, since he's been out uh, for just about a month now with a, with a concussion. Since only 19 players can dress for a game, it's probable that several more trades uh, are in the offing for the Rangers in the very near future. The key player for the Rangers in this deal is Gene Carr. He was the fourth player taken of the 125 who were drafted uh, in the junior draft last June. He's only 20 years old and he's played regularly for the Blues so far this season, but he has been shift, shifting between left wing and center. And this week, the Blues even used him on right wing, and he scored three goals and added two assists so far this season.
The New Yorkers had tried to get him before the draft, but they were unable to make a deal for the high draft pick, and the only players chosen ahead of him in the draft were Guy Lafleur, Jocelyn Gabrama, and Marcel Dion of the Detroit Red Wings. Last season with the Flin Flon Bombers, Carr scored 36 goals and added 68 assists, for 104 points. He's going to work out with the Rangers this week before Emil Francis decides whether he can find a uh, spot on the regular club. And if not, then Carr will be assigned to Omaha, the Central League. By obtaining Carr, the Rangers have one less player to worry about protecting in next June's draft for the new expansion teams because a first-year pro like Gene Carr won't have to be protected. At least one of the former Blues players was happy to get away from St. Louis and new coach Billy McCreary. When Jim Lorenz parted company with the Blues, he made it clear there was little love lost between himself and Bill McCreary, the coach. And this is very interesting. Listen to what uh, Jim Lorenz has to say here. Talks a lot about team dynamics. Lorenz said that he went to Sid Abel on Monday morning and told him that if he wasn't going to get to play more, he would like to be traded. He didn't think, though, that it would be that fast. Lorenz says, I guess the deal had already been in the wind for a while. Lorenz told Gary Muller of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I've always been a slow starter, but I'm basically an offensive-minded hockey player, and I guess I just didn't fit in with the defensive type of game McCreary likes. McCreary, who took over as coach two weeks ago when Sid Abel was kicked upstairs to the general manager's chair, said Lorenz hadn't played as well as we had expected, only one assist so far this season. So we weren't getting much out of him anyway. If McCreary wasn't pleased with Lorenz, the departing player let it be known he wasn't too wild about his coach either. Lorenz said, I really didn't get along with Bill McCreary that well last year when he was a player. I didn't have any respect for him then, but I did my best for the team and for the rest of the players. I think most of the players we have have the potential to score and Sid Abel was heading in the right direction if he had been given more of a chance and we would have done well but we got off to a bad start and everyone seemed to want to blame Sid Abel. So Jim Lorenz going to somewhere he hopes he can play but we have been told or have read in other reports that Emil Francis has already told Lorenz if he can't find room for him here he will attempt to deal him to another National Hockey League team. Well, the Eskenazi story about the Rangers and other trade was written just after that deal was taken place. And just less than an hour later, the Rangers and the Canucks hooked up for a five-player trade. The Rangers sent three veterans to Vancouver. Dave Ballone, left winger, who was their leading goal scorer last season with 36. And veteran right wingers Ron Stewart and Wayne Connolly. Connolly had just been picked up from the Blues in that previous seven-man trade. Coming back to Manhattan in this deal was another youngish veteran, uh, Gary Doak, defenseman. He was thought to be the best rear guard on the Canucks, and the Rangers uh, wanted him. And a minor league forward by the name of Jim Wist, he was also 25 years old, just like Doak. He was with American Hockey League Rochester. 
This trade was obviously a preemptive strike by New York General Manager the Cap Emil the Cap Francis. He was effectively preventing the Boston Bruins from making a deal for Doak. It's well known that the Bruins want actually need to shake up and shore up their blue line core, and they had been making inquiries to Vancouver about Doak. But Vancouver GM Bud Poyle, perhaps foolishly, believes he has the making of a playoff team there in Vancouver, so he jumped at the chance to bring in three what he felt were quality veterans, no matter how far past their best before dates might be, and he eschewed the uh, chance of building an expansion team to bring in veteran help to win a few more games right now. Poyle thinks this deal will put his team in the playoffs in the NHL's Eastern Division. Another team early in the week thought to be on the verge of making a big trade was the Toronto Maple Leafs. This is another one of those unattributed articles. No byline here. I don't know who wrote it. And I really wish there was one for this one. Uh, This article talks about why the Leafs keep popping up in trade rumors. A year ago, the Maple Leafs swung the historic trade which bought... Bobby Bond back to the Maple Leafs after an absence of more than three years. The price, as it turned out, was not very high. They gave the St. Louis Blues left-winger Britt Selby in exchange, and he's been unable to stick in the NHL. The Blues recently sent Britt, a really good guy, to their Central Hockey League satellite at Kansas City. The thinking behind Bond's return ran this way. The Leafs' callow defense was foundering horribly at the time. These greenhorns are all youngsters, needed a steadying hand to give them direction, to teach them, to inspire them, and to bridge the gap until such time as they could become major leaguers all on their own. Alas, the plan has been only partially successful. Bond did assume defensive leadership, and he was instrumental in the dramatic turnaround which carried the 70-71 Maple Leafs club from the bottom of the NHL East to a highly respectable fourth-place finish. However, if the boomer, boomer has had any lasting effect on his young colleagues, they have managed to keep that effectively concealed. From that angle, the Leafs are no better off now than they were on November 13, 1970, when Bond arrived home. Ricky Lee, Jim McKenney, Mike Pellick, Jim Dory, Brad Selwood, and Brian Glennie are precisely where they were two years ago turning in just enough good efforts to keep earning the tab, a promising group of maturing rear guards with immense potential. At this rate, the Leafs can look forward to icing a sextet of promising 40 years olds on defense in 1986. Therefore, the men who run the Toronto Club currently are grappling with a question of considerable complexity. Whether to give up on these aging infants and use one or two of them to pay for the right winger this team so desperately needs, or would it still be wise to wait just a bit longer for McKenney, Lee, Selwood, Glennie, Part, Pellick, and Dory to grow up, mature, and become genuine NHL defenders. It may be, of course, that the difficult decision has already been been reached. It's possible that Leaf thinkers already have concluded that a fellow who hasn't improved steadily over three seasons is never going to make it. There's a chance they've already made up their minds that the shortcomings on the forward line are so acute 
that they can ill afford to cut back to Bond and four others and coughing up a pair to uh, uh, trade away for a sturdy right ringer along the line of Boston's Kenny Hodge might just be the path that they should follow. Now, are we being a little too harsh on these youngsters saying they just haven't improved at all? Are these guys really, really that bad? Should they have been broken up and should they make a trade for a useful veteran like Hodge? Is it unfair, really, to these guys? Well, maybe they've just been unfortunate in their picks. But here's a list of NHL defensemen, 25 years old and under. And these uh, guys are guys like Bobby Orr, Brad Park, Tom Reed, Dale Talon, Rick Smith, Guy Lapointe. Do the Leafs have anybody in the, in that kind of age group who's as good as any of these guys? Two years ago, they thought they did. And that's the problem. On Wednesday, the Bruins and the Seals did get into the trading act, but it wasn't the deal between the two teams that everyone around the NHL had been suggesting and even anticipating. There had been a lot of rumors going around back to the summer that the Bruins were desperately trying to, as we mentioned earlier, shore up their blue line, and most observers felt that the Seals' best player, Carl Vadney, a mobile 25-year-old defenseman, with the skill and speed to play left wing as well, that he was the main Boston target. But on Wednesday, the trade the Bruin and the Seals made involved actually a couple of young forwards, neither of whom had a yet to make their mark in the National Hockey League. Oakland Tribune sports writer John Porter has the report for us when he says the Seals dealt for Ivan the Terrible from Boston today, but as doubtful even he could have made a difference in their terrible game last night uh, when Oakland was bombed by the Canadians 7-2. In the wake of that fourth straight loss, Seals general manager Gary Young traded one of Oakland's farmhands and a second one to be named at the end of the season apparently for 6-1, 200-pound Bruins center Ivan Boldarev. Boldarev says Young is a playmaking centerman and uh, he says he's the, one of the best in the National League, but he's not playing for the Bruins right now. He's playing in the minors. One of the best in the National League? Gary Young actually said this to a reporter. Young went on to say, one of our own defensemen, Paul Schmier, told me the only fight he ever lost in hockey was to Boldarev. Oh, is he tough. Now, Boldarev doesn't come cheaply. The Bruins got Chris Odlison now playing for Oklahoma City. Odlison was Oakland's first-round pick two seasons ago, and Boldarev was the Bruins' top choice in the same draft. Odlison went 10th in that uh, draft. Boldarev was the number 12 selection. So that's the swap. And Boldarev is a, apparently going to play immediately for the Seals. Odlison had been on loan to Oklahoma City by the Seals to Boston. So he just remains there. The Bruins can't use him right now. But he is a young guy. He's only 22. So he's got lots of time to develop. And uh, we'll see whether this deal turns out for either team. Now, they Young had told... Uh, John Porter that the deal would be another Boston pros or another Seals prospect going to Boston 
at the end of the season. Well, they didn't wait long. They waited two days, and two days later, the Bruins announced that they had picked up 20-year-old center Richie LaDuke from the Seals. Uh, LaDuke was playing for the Cleveland Barons of the American Hockey League. He's a 5'11", 165-pound first-year professional, and he's now being switched from the Cleveland Barons to the AHL Boston Braves. He played junior hockey last season with three rivers, scoring 56 goals, 76 assists. The problem is he's uh, not a big guy, 5'11", 165, a little slight, and he'll have to put on some some beef on that frame uh, before he probably has a chance to make it big with Boston, if at all. I think this kid could probably be used in another deal by the Bruins. And yet another deal early this week. The Flyers and Sabres got into the act. The Flyers shuffled right winger Larry Mickey off to Buffalo in a swap that hardly matches the magnitude of the seven and five player deals that the New York Rangers pulled lately. Anyway, in exchange for Mickey, who followed a promising training camp with just a goal and two assists in 14 NHL games this year, the Flyers received veteran left winger Larry Keenan. Keenan, who was the St. Louis Blues' second leading playoff scorer all time behind Red Berenson, although both were traded last season, he had two goals in 14 games for the Sabres this year. He's a 5'10", 177-pounder, and he scored eight goals and 23 assists last season. Larry Keenan, uh, former Maple Leaf prospect, I always thought, I watched him play junior, and I watched him come up. I always thought Larry Keenan was going to be a great, great hockey player. It never quite all came together for him. And I think the main reason, Larry has had a very serious set of injuries, bad knees, but he just had trouble putting it together because of that. Flyers general manager Keith Allen said our left wings haven't been very productive and I'm not suggesting Keenan will cure all our problems but I think he'll give us a little help. I just checked Keenan out with Jerry Melnick who's the Flyers administrative assistant since they played together in St. Louis and I talked to Scotty Bowman who coached Keenan in St. Louis as well. Scotty was quite high on the guy. He said Keenan is an intelligent hockey player. He can skate and he has a good shot. His only problem, according to Scotty Bowman, is he's a little injury prone, as we mentioned. Now, poor Ron Stewart didn't get any, didn't get much time to enjoy his new team in Vancouver, not very long at all. But no, he wasn't traded away by the Canucks, which seems to be in vogue these days, picking up a player, trading him right away. The veteran forward who came in that big trade with the Rangers suffered a fractured jaw without even getting into a game when he was struck by a puck while sitting on the bench during the opening moments of the Canucks game with the Boston Bruins. Ron's probably going to be out a week, maybe two, Although you know hockey players, it's a broken jaw. You can play through it, and Stewart just might try. This might be a bit of a little explanation. This comes from several sources this week, but the word around the NHL is that Canucks general manager Bud Poyle is being pressured by ownership, a bunch of Americans who don't know a little about hockey, or it seems not much else uh, by the uh, looks of the financials with their companies, but these guys are apparently pressuring uh, Poyle over the poor showing of the Canucks 
in only their second NHL season. So that's why he quickly made this deal seemingly out of uh, expedience and not in any way a team-building step for a second-year team. Poyle also recalled center Freddie Speck, who led the American Hockey League in scoring last year, they called him up from Seattle. Now, Fred had been with Seattle for the past two weeks. He went down there, with, uh, but he gave permission to be sent to the minors, meaning he didn't have to clear waivers. He's down there for two weeks. He agreed to go for two weeks. So Poyle has to call him back now, and he has to use him on Vancouver. If he wants to send him, say, down to Rochester, the other farm team for the Canucks, out east, then he's going to have to clear waivers. I'll bet you Freddie Speck wouldn't clear waivers. The National Hockey League season is underway and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL, has an unbelievable offer to celebrate the greatest sport on ice. New customers can bet just $1 on any NHL game and win $100 in free bets if either team scores a goal. Doesn't matter if it's a one-time clapper or a deft deflection, however they light the lamp, you're going to win. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with the DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contest. DraftKings has given all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network. Throw down a dollar on any NHL game and win $100 in free bets simply if either team scores a goal. This week, one puck in the net lets you a big win with promo code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Hockey League. You must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only, a minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager is required. One per customer and some restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for all the details. Have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And don't forget our other sponsor, Newspapers.com, who make all this research possible. You may remember we told you earlier this year about the dangerous driving charge levied against the Los Angeles Kings general manager, Larry Regan, for an incident in Quebec last June. The case finally went to trial this week, and it was, to say the least, a curious affair, as so many things in the 1970s were in La Belle Province. David Yates of the Ottawa Journal reports Larry Regan, general manager of the National Hockey League LA Kings, was acquitted of dangerous driving in Hull Court. Judge Orville Frenette decided to reserve judgment until December 15th, though, in the case of Regan's passenger, Renfrew County Judge Frank Dunlap, who was charged with willfully obstructing two Quebec provincial police officers. Both cases, dating to June 6th, were heard at the same time. In dismissing the charge against Regan, Judge Frenette said both Regan and Dunlop were very, quote, credible witnesses whose testimony contradicted that given by Constable Michael Bertrand. 
He maintained special crown prosecutor Robert Cliche had not proved beyond reasonable doubt, that word reasonable is key here, the charge against Regan. Constable Bertrand said he followed the car Regan was driving along Highway 11 for 12 miles to Gracefield. He said Regan passed 12 to 15 cars along the winding and hilly highway, forcing an oncoming car off the road because he was straddling the white line and he reached speeds of up to 80 miles an hour. Judge Dunlap testified he was looking at Regan during the ride while they discussed the upcoming hockey draft in Montreal. Dunlap said he might have been going a few miles over the speed limit, but I have no recollection that he endangered anyone. Regan admitted it was possible he was over the speed limit. I'm used to driving on freeways with four or five lanes, and I wouldn't get into that habit of straddling lanes, Regan said. He denied forcing cars off the highway and said he only passed about five cars over the 12-mile distance. In Dunlap's case, Constable Bertrand said he asked Regan to follow him to the QPP detachment in Lowe. When they arrived, Constable Bertrand said he asked both men to sit down. Dunlap began to protest, saying, let's go, we have no time to lose, said the police officer. I said, set down, it won't be long, continued Bertrand. He said Dunlap continued to protest and, and prevented himself and two other officers from filling out the forms for Regan's arrest. Constable, Constable Bertrand said he then asked Dunlap to leave the office and told Dunlap he would be charged if he didn't leave. You can't charge me, I'm a judge, Dunlap was quoted as replying to Constable Bertrand. He said Constable Jean Galinois then forced Dunlap to leave the office, but Dunlap came back in the door and pinned the constable to the wall. The constable finally pushed Dunlap out the door, said Constable Bertrand. Dunlap was very impolite and protested against the administration of justice in Quebec, said Constable Bertrand. Constable Galinois said he moved over to Dunlap after he pounded his fist twice on the counter. He claimed Dunlap said, I don't have to sit down. I'm going to say what I please. The English always supported the French and always will. They are starving. They want to separate. And as soon as they separate, they will starve even quicker. Constable Galinois said Dunlap was trying to impress the officers with the prestige of his position as a judge. He was arrogant and very impolite says Galinois. When charges were threatened, according to the constable, Dunlap said, you must be kidding, kid. I'm a judge. You can't lay charges against me. Regan, a Canadian, told the court one officer had said they were going to be at the detachment a long time and that Americans should stay in the United States instead of ruining the beautiful Quebec countryside. He said the police officers got the impression he was American because of his California driver's license. Regan maintained Dunlap never mentioned to anyone that he was a judge. Constable Galinois started off pushing Dunlap, knocking off his hat. The two fell to the floor, Regan said. At that time, Regan said he told the officer, you just don't realize it, but you just slugged the judge. 
Regan then testified that Constable Galanois said, I could kill him because I'm a black belt champion. Constable Galanois has a green belt in karate and a blue belt in jiu-jitsu. Regan said he had never seen hockey players more excited than Constable Galanois. A little embellishment there, I would expect. He completely lost his head, said Regan. Dunlap said he went into the police station because, quote, I was curious. I went in because as a judge, I don't always have the opportunity to see what's going on at the other end. He told the court he had been somewhat shocked at the diatribes about persons from outside Quebec ruining the province's countryside. Dunlap said, I got fed up with the second diatribe leveled at me. He asked the officers, what are you going to do? Start acting like police officers at some point, I hope. He maintained Constable Galanois, then took a swing at him. I ducked and my cap fell off, said Dunlap, who then he ordered the constable to pick it up, which the constable apparently did. Dunlap said the constable Galanois took him by the forearm and began pushing him. My foot slept. I fell, and he fell on top of me. At that point, Regan, according to Dunlap, said, Watch out, that man's a judge. So Regan is acquitted because two police officers' uh, evidence contradicts that of a judge and an old-time hockey player, now NHL GM, according to the uh, judge that listens to the case. I wasn't there. I couldn't say for sure, but uh, I guess it... uh, makes a reasonable doubt. It was interesting, however, that Dunlap's case was reserved until December, so the judge could consider the evidence a little more closely. Very interesting on this one. Uh, We'll see in December just what happens to Judge Frank Dunlap. And a little more off the ice court news this week. A provincial court in Niagara Falls uh, said that Eddie Shack has paid a $23 fine out of court after being charged with failing to report an accident. The official said Shack, a forward with the Buffalo Sabres, was charged last week after his car slammed through a fence into a field in Fort Erie, sustaining $1,800 damage. Shack wasn't hurt. This took place right behind my cousin's house in Fort Erie, and apparently they went out and helped Eddie Shack pushed the car back towards the road, but the police arrived in the meantime. Add yet another city to the long list of those hoping to acquire a National Hockey League franchise. This one's an extreme long shot. Dan Meyer, the hockey impresario and owner of the Golden Eagles of the Western Hockey League in Salt Lake City, wants to bring an NHL franchise to Utah. His plans are already in the Major League Mill. He's been busy flying back and forth uh, to try and get a commitment for Salt Lake City from the NHL. That commitment isn't yet coming. Well, the California Golden Seals might have another trade grievance this week. Tommy Webster, acquired from Detroit in exchange for defenseman Ron Stackhouse, was hospitalized with a back ailment, and it's suspected he had this problem at the time that the trade was made. Webster was the Red Wings' top scorer last season, and if healthy, would be a fine acquisition for the Seals, 
who were stung earlier when goalie Jerry Desjardins obtained from Chicago couldn't play because of residual damage from a broken arm. In that case, the Seals and Blackhawks reworked the trade. You're going to find they're going to try the same trick here. I bet it doesn't work this time. Later on in the week after the Bruins and the Seals made that deal, there were more rumors. Milt Schmidt says, there's nothing doing on any more trades for us. I don't want anybody to think that... Uh, or that Boulder Odlifson will go somewhere else. Uh, I talk about trades all the time, but most of these rumors just aren't true. And a perfect example, Stan Fischler reports in the Sporting News this week that the chances are that the Bruins will unload Derek Sanderson for a good price and then move Bobby Orr's business partner, Mike Walton, from left wing to center, which is Mike's natural position. See, Walton would be expected to not criticize the long schedule like Sanderson does, the excess of travel like Sanderson does, or the junior uh, Adams, Weston, for their ownership of the Bruins. So Fischler says that a trade with uh, Sanderson being dealt from Boston should happen very quickly or not. Here's a story that was pretty much ignored in our part of the world at the time, but actually it was pretty significant as reported 50 years later. Veteran center Guile Fielder, the Salt Lake City Golden Eagles, became the highest scoring professional hockey player in history this week as he now has 1,810 career points. Fielder was lured out of retirement by the Golden Eagles two years ago to join that Western Hockey League expansion club, and he passed the previous high point production of Detroit's recently retired Gordie Howe by picking up four assists in his last two games this week. Uh, blanked in Thursday's game at the Salt Palace against Seattle, Fielder erupted with assists on the uh, Eagles' first three goals Friday in Seattle to tie Howe's mark of 1809. And then against Portland on Sunday, Fielder won the draw in a faceoff for the left of Portland goalie Dave Kelly, passed the puck to Wilf Martin, who slammed it home from the slot 30 feet in front of the Buckaroos' net. Fielder was mobbed by his teammates as he returned to the players' bench and received a standing ovation from the Portland fans when the public announcement of the feat was made. Unfortunately, that wasn't quite the end of this story. He's got to wonder now just what he has to do to break the Hall time scoring record. He supposedly broke the mark, as we said, when he scored his 1810th point. But now all of a sudden, a check of the record book indicates that Guile Fielder is actually 47 points short of the record. How could that happen? Well, here's how. you got to consider everything. Gordy Howe has more than 1,809 points after all because they did not consider the 48 points that he scored for the Omaha Knights of the United States Hockey League, a pro league, during the 1945-46 season. Salt Lake City uh, Eagles officials were under the impression the league was amateur when figuring in Howe's total, but they come to find out that at that time, the USHL was indeed a pro league, so Gordie Howe has 1,857 career points, and Fielder has to go to 48 more to break the record with 56 games left in the schedule this season. 
And we did promise you a World Hockey Association update this week. There was a lot of news on that front, and we have the highlights for you here. And, of course, for more detail on the WHA, our Patreon subscribers are going to be getting a big uh uh, broadcast this week where we get into much of the backstories for what we have for you here. On Tuesday, the word came down that the WHA was definitely wanting to place a team somewhere in New England. The preferred site seemed to be Providence, Rhode Island, and a formal request to use the arena that the American Hockey League Reds played in was made to the city. The story was that the city was seriously considering uh, that thought, but by the end of the week, the WHA idea was nixed by those in charge of the Providence Reek, and later in the week it was revealed that the new league was now looking at some type of arrangement to play in Boston Garden or possibly another undisclosed New England locale. Here's the Associated Press report on the Providence idea. After initially rebuffing a new professional hockey league club's bid to play in the Providence Civic Center, the Civic Center Authority Monday formally heard the team's proposal, which includes an offer to guarantee the city a minimum of $75,000 for its first year in Providence. Howard Baldwin, president of the new England Hockey Team Incorporated of the newly formed World Hockey Association said he met for more than an hour with the authority and offered to accept the lease for as short a period as one year. John J. Cummings Jr., chairman of the authority, said the authority did not decide whether to grant the team's request for about 40 playing dates in the center next year. He said such a decision would be made within the next week. And as it turned out, within the next week, they graciously declined Baldwin's request. Several people associated with the World Hockey Association have said that it may draft players, junior players, before their 20th birthday to get the best prospects before the NHL can sign them. The NHL, of course, can't sign players under 20 because they have an agreement with the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association that they will not draft the player before he is in his 21st year. The interesting part, of this rumor is that Bill Hunter, Wild Bill Hunter, the owner of both the World Hockey Association Edmonton franchise and the Western Canada Junior Hockey League Junior A Edmonton Oil Kings, he was a prime mover in establishing that 20-year-old age floor for drafting juniors and now it would appear he's willing to go against that principle in the name, of course, of profits and starting up his new league. It was reported this week that the National Hockey League had actually made its first official overture to the Upstart World Hockey Association in an attempt to head off an interleague war. Now that was uh, a report that the Toronto Star came up with. The NHL governor uh, for the Rangers, William M. 
Jennings, president of the Rangers, conferred at length with Neil Shane, president of the WHA's New York franchise. In an unprecedented move, Jennings offered the rival league upwards of 12 Madison Square Garden dates for 1972-73. The meeting, held at Jennings' invitation, took place at the Garden on Saturday of last week, earlier in the week, Shane had announced plans to start an antitrust suit against the Garden and the NHL for approving a franchise in the uh, Nassau-Long Island Coliseum. Shane had hoped to place his WHA sextet at the 15,000-seat rink located in Hempstead, New York. He claims he's been boxed out by the NHL as well as the Rangers, but Jennings replied he would make dates available to Shane if he so desired. That would apparently head off an antitrust suit. Shane said Jennings made it clear that he would have no objections to the WHA playing at the Gardens and also 20 dates in Hempstead. He said the rent for the Gardens dates would be in line with what the New York Nets of the American Basketball Association have paid. It sounds reasonable enough on the surface, but I know, says Shane, there are several complications. A major obstacle is that the WHA plans to raid Jennings Rangers for talent next season. All-star defenseman Brad Park, as well as forwards Roger Bear, Jean Rattel, Vic Hadfield, and Walter Kachuk are high on the new WHA New York team's radar. And a bit about the new St. Paul WHA team. Lewis I. Kaplan didn't like the style of hockey he paid to watch, so he turned in his Minnesota North Stars season tickets and eventually decided to start his own pro team in the Infant World Hockey Association. Kaplan says, I became disenchanted after the first year, 1967-68, and I never renewed my tickets. Kaplan, by the way, is president of a scrap iron and metal company in St. Paul. Kaplan says he got as much of a thrill out of watching high schools and peewee hockey as he did watching the North Stars. Kaplan said, I got tired of them just throwing the puck in the corner and scrambling around after it. I didn't like their coach, now manager Ren Blair, jumping up and down and walking on the seats. It was insulting. Just wait till you get a load of the annex that take place in the WHA, Louie. I wonder how long you're going to last in that league. Late in the week, we got word of yet another city interested in the so-called World Hockey League, as reported in uh, the uh, Arizona Republic. The Phoenix Roadrunners officials have apparently been talking to representatives of the WHA in an effort to see if there's any interest in putting a WHA franchise somewhere out in the desert. And our final bit this week uh, from Tim Moriarty of Newsday, Al Eagleson talks to Mr. Moriarty, a fine hockey writer, about the WHA. And here's a bit of the conversation. Eagleson was asked by Moriarty, how do you feel about the formation of the WHA? And Al says it's the biggest thing that has happened for the players since the formation of the NHLPA and it's accomplished 
two things already. First, it got the NHL owners to accept the fact they might not even own the players forever. Therefore, they better treat them as regular employees and not as slaves as they do now. And secondly, it forced the NHL to make a significant change in its standard players contract. A lot of people don't know this, but the NHL removed Clause 13C, which permitted any team at any time to give a player two weeks notice of dismissal. Previously, the owners could say, here's your two weeks notice, you're a free agent, we don't owe you any money. Terms of a contract didn't matter. Now, the NHL removed the phrase because they were fearful of what a court might rule with a clause like that in a player's contract. Moriarty also asked Eagleson, what protection does a player have now? And Eagleson says that for all intents and purposes, every player now has a no-cut contract. Even if the player has a three-year contract, he is guaranteed full payment, which just seems like basic contract law. He can be traded or demoted to the minors, but he has to get the amount of money that he signed for. So Moriarty asked, do you think the WHA would be operating this season? And Eagleson says that he would offer a qualified yes for this reason. Al says, I had one of my partners sit in on the WHA meetings in New York, and he came back with the information I was seeking. What type of people were involved, their financial background, and an indication of whether or not they would be prepared to lose substantial amounts of money over the first few years. It appears at this stage the WHA is prepared to do exactly that. However, until the WHA owners put up a million dollars or show a similar type of financial responsibility, I would not believe fishtails. When asked if the NHL teams would go to court if their players jumped to the WHA, Eagleson says he's not sure, but he has an educated guess. He says that the NHL isn't going to be overly concerned if the WHA raids fringe players, of course. But if the WHA goes after Bobby Orr or Phil Esposito or Bobby Hall, then the NHL has to go to court. That's because the league's whole foundation would be at stake. So who would win such a court battle? Well, Eagleson's guess is that no court will hold the standard NHL player's contract, as it's written right now, as valid in every sense. Eagleson doesn't think the courts would rule that a player is bound for life to one team. However, they could say that a player must sit out a year or play out an option year so as to provide the owners with some kind of protection. And there's a clue right there, by the way, that Alan Eagleson is in the owner's corner. He believes they need protection and could hold some kind of leverage over a player so they just can't walk away at an end of contract. Eagleson also said that the courts might possibly say that the whole bloody contract is invalid because it involves such a restraint of trade that it constitutes antitrust. A little look at the future there. So Eagleson is asked by Moriarty as the interview comes to an end, would you represent players in the World Hockey Association? And Eagleson says, that's the first player, the first thing that all the players are asking me. And if they want me, I am available. 
And that brings us to the end of this week's show, everyone. What did we learn this week? Well, we had some big trades. In fact, for a while there, it looked like trade deadline day 50 years later. Actually, better trades than what we get on deadline day in the uh, 2021. We talked a bit about the Maple Leafs young defense players and what the future may hold there, namely possibly some trades. And we learned a bit about how things are going on the World Hockey Association front, or in some places how things are not going. Here's some of the stories we're working on for next week's show. A former National Hockey League goalie will find himself suspended from his coaching duties indefinitely by the Ontario Hockey Association, and we'll have the details. We will see the Seals once again whining about being stiffed in a trade. We gave you a little hint of that this week. They'll uh, start whining full-fledged next week. And it would appear that the Western Hockey League is in a life-and-death struggle for survival with the advent of the WHA. And we'll tell you how the league plans to survive. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Colt. Can't thank him enough for all his hard work. Andy is now in the business of producing podcasts professionally. If you're thinking of starting one up, get hold of me. I'll hook you guys up. He's one of the best in the business, a true media professional. Very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. If you ever get a chance to see them perform live, don't miss the opportunity. They put on a great show. Other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files of the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us every week here on the Hockey Podcast Network. We're on Twitter every day at at Hockey 50 Years. We have a Facebook page 50 years ago on hockey, a WordPress site, hockey50yearsago.com. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into our show each week. Very interesting season going on. A lot of developments that are going to shape the hockey world for years to come. And we're going to be with you all the way. And on that note, we'll see you next time. When the ice-